Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. So when I ran a wine bar, uh, the thing we got asked about the most was blind tasting. And within the world of wine, blind tasting is incredibly fetishized, in part, I think, because of the mystery surrounding it. Today, I want to take a look at the techniques used to identify wine structure and aroma, as well as how to correlate those characteristics to regional and varietal identifiers. Basically, we're going to walk through blind tasting. And to do that, I've enlisted my friend Brandon Kern He's a sommelier who pivoted at the start of the pandemic to wine e-commerce. He runs a retail site called Wines by BK, and every Thursday he teaches a blind tasting class. Brandon has sat for the notoriously difficult tasting portion of the Master Sommelier exam several times and is the unofficial leader of the blind tasting group that I attend every Saturday. So in this episode, rather than just talk about the philosophy of tasting, we're actually going to put Brandon through a set of wines. So we'll just jump right in. How you doing? I am good. Uh, just getting my day started. And now I have four wines in front of me that I don't know what they are. They look kind of scary. Nah, nah, they're, they're, they're fine. So Brandon, you and I go way back. We go back to, I believe, 2015, right? When I, I came into Houston's and I didn't know why there was Shav and Ridge on the menu. Hell yeah. Yeah. Fucking like, like back vintage Litton Springs. It was like 06. Yeah, who is this maniac putting these wines on the Houston's menu? Well, and I had seen you at your downtown Papa's restaurant. You were yeah. working at the steakhouse, and I had just seen that movie, Anomalisa. I don't remember that one. You remember it's the one with marionettes? It's the second best marionette sex scene in a movie after Team America World Police. Well, that sounds like something that would fascinate me. Yeah. No, I'm trying to remember. Andy Kaufman's the director, the guy that did Schenectady, New York. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. I love that movie. Yeah. That's one of my favorite movies, but um, that I still don't understand at all, and I've watched it probably 10 times. Yeah. Um, dude, pour one out for Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know, seriously. Fucking goat. That yeah. dude was great. What's your uh, top three Philip Seymour Hoffman films? What do you got? Uh, I mean, probably just Synecdoche, New York, Synecdoche, New York, <laughs> Synecdoche, yeah. New York. Not uh, Along I'm, Came Polly? No, on, bro. I'm, I'm not as big of a fan of his across the board. Uh, I like Capote. Yeah? Yeah. So I'm really excited to have you here today because we are going to go through a blind tasting and I think you are one of the best blind tasters that I know. Um, And I think a large part of that is because the way in which you blind taste is very intuitive. So I'm super stoked to taste with you. Kind of, Do you want to talk to me a little bit about how you kind of like learned blind tasting, like where kind of like the big things were for you in learning about all of that? Um, The first thing I'd say, the first step is really you you have to study. And um, so there's a certain amount of theory that you have to understand just to even get into blind tasting. As I'm teaching consumers in my blind tasting, these virtual courses, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, um, you, you understand how much foundational knowledge is required to even begin to to even to really enjoy it right i'm sure it's still fun if you don't know what these things are but if you're trying to blind a wine and then i say oh nope it's not 
that it's Austrian Gruner Veltliner. And you're like, wait, they make wine in Austria and Gruner what? Yeah. You're, you had no shot at that wine because you didn't even know it was a possibility. Yeah. Um, so the foundational knowledge is important. And then I, I think understanding the key characteristics of each style, like the template of a platonic, like the platonic ideal, the paradigm of that style, mm-hmm. um, it is important. And because from there you can, that's really, I think the benefit of blind tasting. One of the main benefits is that you can understand where the, the core of this region style is. And then when you taste things that vary from the average, you can say this is a warm vintage because the fruit's riper or this is a oakier, more extracted style than it's classic for the region. Um, yeah. Hell yeah. So for listeners, what we've got here is we've got four wines for Brandon. We've got two whites and two reds, and he's going to taste them without knowing what they are. He's going to tell us a little bit about them, and then we're going to talk a little bit about where he fucked up and where he fucking crushed it. (laughs) But there won't be much to talk about in where he fucked up because he's going to crush it. So. And we'll just call the wines wine one, two, three, and four, with wine one being white, wine two being second white, wine three being the first red, wine four being the second red. All right. And feel like, feel good? Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, and kind of the way the way I'll, I'll do this is I, I, I think with, like I said, that narrative expository style so that you don't have to listen to me list off adjectives for the next four minutes. Um, but I'll talk... I will try to talk as best I can through my rambling thought process as I try to figure out what these things are. You want me to just go ahead and get started? Dude, let's do it, baby. All right. The first thing I'll do in any flight in general is I I will walk through each of the wines because I want to get an idea of what I'm getting into. And sometimes you get to a point where you kind of have an idea of what some of the wines are right off the bat. One that calms my nerves because I don't know... Once I get past wine number two and three and I'm on my last wine and then I suddenly hit with a doozy, I like to know that it's a doozy going in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like what I would recommend to someone if they're taking a written test. Mm-hmm. Don't start from question one. Look through the whole test so that you know that the last page has really difficult questions that are going to take you at least a quarter of the testing time to finish. So yeah. you're like, all right, that last page is going to take me a long time or maybe the first page will. So yeah. I might do the end before the beginning, yeah. et cetera. So do it once um, over. Yeah, exactly. Um, so wine one, the first thing I notice is the colors we use at least through the quarter master sommeliers are um, straw yellow and gold. Uh, and then there's amber and brown. But unless we're dealing with dessert wines or ports and stuff, I don't think you really get into that, is that this wine has some color. Uh, so it's not straw. We're looking at kind of a yellow core of the wine golden hues so the first thing that is going through my mind is why is this wine this color why does it have color um and the reason for that could be oxidation maybe it's older it could be um and as a wine oxidizes it gets closer to gold and then amber and brown um it could be oaked the uh the oak itself provides a porous atmosphere and it provides a bit of oxidation and also uh the oak gives color to the wine Another reason would be Petritus, um, that uh, finicky noble rot that also for various enzymatic reasons allows for more oxidation. 
but the, yeah, there's some metabolic processes that create a more golden color. Uh, so I'm gonna try to figure that out before the end of this wine and keeping myself tight on remembering I need to explain this color will um, make sure I don't go down the wrong route on this wine. Uh, on the nose, it's, it's a clean, fresh wine. It seems pretty youthful. Uh, there aren't strong signs of development. The aromatic intensity is medium plus. It's not a neutral style. It does have some lift to the aromas, but it's not as intense as, you know, something like Gewürztraminer, Muscat. Uh, so I think right away, it's kind of fun to say uh, from a blind tasting perspective, I can throw out, I double check before I say this, before I make some bold claims, but I'm going to throw out any aromatic grape variety. We call them terpenic grape varieties. These are grape varieties that have this... Um, a family of molecular compounds called terpenes and it smells like anything from rose water to citronella to to jasmine um so these floral compounds tend to make really lifted aromatic wines and that family would be muscat gewurztraminer viognier tarantes no chance this is one of these wines god help me i'm not wrong there <laughs> um so i'm gonna throw those out so i'm already starting to eliminate well i've eliminated all the red wine grapes of the world, right? Yeah. So, and I've eliminated a good number of white grapes. Albarino and uh, Riesling also have some terpenic qualities, this floral quality, and I'm not finding that here either. Um, so I'm gonna throw those out as well. The wine is a little bit reductive. Um, and what I mean by that is that it doesn't seem like it saw a lot of oxygen in its winemaking or that it could have been hit with some sulfur before bottling. The aromatic compound that is leading me to conclude that is it kind of smells a little bit like gunflint or struck match and that's just sulfur dioxide um the fruit profile is kind of baked uh it's ripe citrus like lemon lemon curd with baked apples and pears uh so there is some sunshine here but it doesn't seem super ripe this could be a moderate climate um i get a little bit of um like white and yellow flowers honeysuckle but nothing that I think is gonna lead me to form a conclusion about the identity of this wine. It's not terribly important what's going on with florals in this wine. Um, there's a nice sense of like white button mushroom uh, minerality and and I get a little bit of kind of like uh, wet limestone and baked clay, kind of inorganic minerality. And the way we do that, we divide it into organic and inorganic. It's kind of like, does it smell like rotting living things or does it smell like rocks and this one smells a little bit like both it's got some minerality i also on the nose get a slight like toasted pie crust toasted cinnamon um burnt vanilla thing which leads me to believe this wine spent time in a french oak barrique um if it was american oak it'd be much more vanilla and coconut driven uh, this is like a zesty baking spice kind of quality which is classic for french oak most regions in the world use French oak, so I'm not I'm not telling you anything new here. And uh, yeah, which I think here I can now go back to the beginning and say the oak is probably the reason for this color. On the palate, the wine's clean. The wine is dry. I think you still have that baked fruit character. Um, the the apples and pears, the lemon curd, all the fruit seems to be a little more developed on the palate where I think this wine might have some age on it, but not a lot, like five to seven years of bottle age. I do get some oxidation 
that I didn't catch on the nose. Uh, the, redu the reduction is still there on the palate too. The oxidation is indicated by like this toasted sesame seed, toasted almond quality. Um, and I also get some like uh, wet dough that makes me think this has some what we call batonage. It's lee stirring. I'm looking just because this aligns with a Chardonnay style. I'm going to check for um, malolactic fermentation. I always do kind of a winemaking check. What are the things that could be done to this one that I haven't talked about? And this has a bit of a kind of like Greek yogurt and uh, like milky lactic character to it. Uh, sour cream where I think there's some malolactic fermentation here. I don't know why it is so much more doubt inducing to do this with a microphone in front of me instead, <laughs> instead of in front of uh, a tasting group where you're like, wait, is this, is this converse greener? Yeah. Um, uh, so structurally, I, I do think the oak is still there on the palate. Structurally, the wine's medium body with moderate plus acidity, moderate plus alcohol. I get a little bit of like, like uh, alcoholic warmth on the back of my throat. The acid's fresh, but not searing. This seems like a moderate climate, a grape that retains some acidity, but isn't so tart like Chenin Blanc or Riesling. How are you gauging body? That's obviously like an amalgamation of a couple of different things, but I would do, I would use body. And essentially I, I think of skim milk. Um, it's kind of muscle memory now, but I used to think skim milk, 2% milk, whole milk, half and half heavy whipping cream. And, and there's your, does this taste like, does this have the weight and density of skim milk? Light body. Does it have the weight and density of 2% milk? Medium minus to medium bodied. And then you kind of yeah. climb it up and really like the, the half and half or heavy whipping cream is something you really only get when you get into like super heavy wines. Yeah. Uh, it would likely be a red wine or a fortified wine, like a port. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I feel pretty comfortable with this, um, with the minerality and the use of oak and the malolactic, a little bit of oxidation, um, putting this in a Chardonnay, um, from, uh, modest vintage in Burgundy. I could just do like a, uh, Bourgogne Blanc or a Oco de Nuit 2015 vintage. Uh, yeah, that's, that's as good as I can do. <laughs> um, you want me to go through each of them or do you want to talk? We can, we can, we can do, do the two whites. Well, they're pretty different. I smell the second white. It's aromatic and floral. So I don't, I don't think it's going to confuse me. All right. Yeah. If you want to do the reveal. Let, let, let's do, let's do uh, the two whites. We'll talk about them and then we'll do the two reds and we'll talk about them. That sounds good. Cool. Okay. So second white has no color like the first white had. Uh, this is more of straw with a green hue. That green hue to the wine, the silver platinum kind of green thing indicates to me this wine is youthful. It's probably no more than two years old. On the nose, the wine's clean. It's highly aromatic. I mean, this thing just jumps out the glass and it's very floral. It's pretty, it smells like something I could rub on my wrist before a first date. <laughs> um, so I get a lot of uh, peaches here. Um, it's much riper uh, in the fruit profile than the previous wine, not necessarily an alcoholic weight. It's got this like peach and apricot and mango. There is um, a bit of lychee here like some exotic, very weird looking fruit section yeah. at HEB. Yeah, it has that character. This it, it smells like many unconventional fruits. 
the fruit character is um, a, a bit like rose water, jasmine. There's a little bit of spice, like musk, kind of gingerbread. And uh, I don't think this wine spent any time in oak. Uh, it's likely stainless steel or neutral oak, but it's, it seems like it has the precision and freshness of a stainless steel wine. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it, uh, it's got a little bit of like wet sand minerality, but it's the florals are so strong that it's hard to say that it has a strong mineral backbone. On the pal, the wine's clean. The wine's dry. Um, it's surprising it has a little bit of acidity. Uh, the fruit character is a little more restrained. It goes a little more tart on the palate, which I think is usually for us. Uh, one of the things we always say is that if it goes more tart, if it seems more tart than you expected on the palate, it's old world. And if it seems riper and sweeter on the palate than you expected or about what you expected, then it's new world. I um, So I'm leaning towards old world in the style already. Um, you still have that really ripe. It's, it's got this unusual like candy pear thing on the palate. Uh, but but still the um, this is more like underripe peaches and mango. All the fruit moves to a more underripe character here. Still that underripe tropical fruit, a little bit of key lime. Um, there's still that wet sand minerality, but it's not intense. Still that like kind of musk gingerbread structure. It's got a medium plus body with medium plus acidity, uh, moderate plus alcohol. It's kind of like nicely just textured and balanced all the way through. Um, and uh, it's a moderate complexity with some length. I do think as I'm letting it sit on the palate, this like unusual flavor that I'm getting that I called candied pears is a grapiness. Uh, like that purple candy that you have when you're a kid. And that, that I think is going to lead me to where I've got to go with this wine. Uh, and it's... Um, I think that here I have to be in an aromatic family of grapes. So Gewürztraminer, and Viognier, Tarantes, and Muscat. Um, the really unusual thing here is that there is no, there's too much acidity, I feel like, for Gewürztraminer, Viognier. It'd be, it'd be a really fresh style. Um, and both those, I would expect maybe a little bit of sugar. But for mm -hmm. Gewürz, a little bit of sugar and maybe some Botrytis, that like honeyed character of the Novorot. Um, and the... Torontes can sometimes get this thing. I don't want to talk bad about Torontes, but let's be honest, how often do we drink it? Um, proof's in the pudding there. It is getting better. When I've lined them recently, this could be Torontes. Um, it, it, it tends to have kind of a lemon pledge quality. This like chemical citronella thing. Mm -hmm. uh, mosquito torches. Um, Takes me back to fucking summer camp. Yeah. That's no, exactly. Yeah, this nostalgic. does not smell like summer camp. It does smell like kids' candy. Uh, I think I would have to end this with um, a, a mascot from Alsace Call with a couple years of age on it, 2018. That's the best I could do because mascot will be this dry and it will have acid and it doesn't often have arthritis. All right. Now for the reveal. Yeah, let's see. Ones. Let's see what we got. Oh, gosh. Well, so I really liked that you uh, correctly identified like the family of grapes with these two wines. Uh -huh. so, oh, nice. Yeah. So we've got, uh, for wine number one, it was a Chardonnay. It was actually from California. It was a Napa Valley Chardonnay. And it, um, it's got enough ripeness of fruit that I was considering that. 
it's nice to see it's 2014 vintage, yeah. so it does have a little bit of bottle age on it. Mm-hmm. Just this um, is Monticello Vineyards Estate Grown Chardonnay from Oak Knoll District of Napa. It is a colder area of Napa, and then, kind of a cooler vintage too. And then for wine number two, you <laughs> narrowed it down to you narrowed it down to two grapes. Yeah, you yeah. were between Muscat and Tarantes, and I selfishly wanted to do this wine because I've been blinded on it and can't get it right. Yeah. So I figured I'd give it to you. Um, then I go back in and I'm like, oh, there's the lemon pledge thing. Now I can smell it. Yeah. But this is really nice. Uh, Zuccardi Syria Tarantes from Salta. And, and I do think um, the more and more I'm tasting Tarantes, this, this, the acidity here is really fresh and bright. Um, which is more common with these, they grow Tarantes at really, really, really high altitudes in um, Argentina. And you get some, this acidity that you really don't get in the other, mm. um, the other floral grapes. So that's exciting. I, I think that the jury's still out on Tarantes, but it is, as I keep tasting them every year, they're, they're getting... The things that made them easy to blind because it was so obvious and unsatisfying yeah. are going away. Uh, and, and it's tasting more classic. That's really nice. So, I mean, I think what was really cool with what you did is you immediately, just based on like sight and smell, you were able to eliminate so many things and narrow your world down into a handful of varieties for each of these wines. Um you know, that's such a big part of it, right? And then thinking about the winemaking techniques that you talked about. So re- re- really great. That was super fun to do. Um, any big takeaways for you in this? Um, going through those two I whites? think I should have at least acknowledged the fact that one, one of the big things is making sure that you don't keep any information to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like a therapy, you know, like let it all out. And in, in my mind was this has the ripeness that baked fruit that I would expect out of a Napa wine, but it had some nice acidity. Yeah. Um, so I think I should have at least acknowledged that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried to justify that with a warmer vintage in Burgundy with 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think just vocalizing it is helpful. Yeah. If for nothing else, but saving face. <laughs> yeah. In <laughs> uh, the Torontes, um, I think it's just exciting that these grapes don't exist in a vacuum. Like Pinotage is not the same grape in South Africa that it was 20 years ago. If you taste Pinotage today, a lot of these opinions that we have about it, mm-hmm. you can ask someone that has really strong opinions about Pinotage and how trashy of a grape it is. Ask them, when's the last time you did a side-by-side of 10 current vintage Pinotages? They probably haven't. Yeah. So these are grapes. I mean, South Africa's wine making or their modern wine history doesn't go back that far. Neither does Argentina's for like commercial global winemaking. And it Tarantes is a style that is still evolving. And I think they're learning how to grow it correctly. Uh, and in the, like the chemical lemon pledge thing, which I think is a metabolic process of one of these terpenes that yeah. converts it into a compound. I don't remember the name that smells like citronella and lemon chemicals. Yeah. Um, it, it's not as common anymore. It's not, it's not such an impact mm-hmm. on your nose when you first smell it. Uh, it's really nice. That's fun. So you ready to do a little Tinto? Yeah, let's do some Tinto. Hell yeah, dog. All right, one, three. 
wine three is a red wine. It's opaque. I can't see through it, and it's also kind of hazy, um, which means that uh, this wine was likely unfiltered. Uh, and it has a deep purple core fading to a garnet rim. There's a garnet hue around the rim. So uh, medium plus rim variation. This wine likely has a little bit of age on it. On the nose, the wine is developing. Intensity aroma is a medium plus. I'm immediately getting like these intense notes of cooked fruit. Um, this kind of like figgy raisiny thing. Um, and it's got a like dried blackberry, blackberry jam, but kind of soured. I get some black pepper. Um, so this seems like a dark fruited wine immediately in my mind. I'm, I'm throwing out things like, and it's thick skin. I'm throwing out things like Pinot Noir. I'm throwing out, um, varietal Grenache, uh, throwing out Gamay from Beaujolais, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo. This would be a really unusual color for these grapes to have. Now, so I'm, I'm really, in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to work with things like Tempranillo, Corvina in an Amarone style, Syrah, Shiraz, Cabernet Merlot. These are, this is the ballpark. I'm getting um, this black pepper, juniper, kind of smoked bacon character. I've got um, a little bit of uh, oak spice, but it doesn't seem overly dominated by new oak. Um, there's a faint vanilla and clove in the background though. But this wine definitely spent time in some neutral oak. There's some evolution to the flavor. And I think it had some bottle age too. There's like a scorched earth minerality. The wine, if we kind of talk about wine number two, the white wine that I had, that wine had a tart finish on the palate. Whereas this wine seems sweeter on the palate than I expected it to be. Um, there's ripeness here, which kind of at least pushes me in the direction of a warm vintage or a new world wine. Um, you've got like raisin and fig, the blackberry jam, jelly. I mean, this seems like it's from a really warm place or that maybe they dried the grapes out in some way. I think this wine actually has some sugar. Uh, I'm getting sweetness on the palate. Um, really unusual. Um, there's kind of a licorice character, that black pepper, that like green juniper, almost like sage thing, spearmint, black garlic, if that makes sense. You know, black garlic gets that fruity character. I've never used this to describe a wine, but I had some black garlic this weekend. So it seemed, it's like savory, uh, like reduced, uh, also combined with almost this like fig character. Yeah. I have someone blind taste black garlic. It's really confusing. <laughs> um, and and I, I do think there's a little bit of new oak, but it's not a dominating feature here. I think this is most, mostly neutral oak. So structurally, it's full body. Uh, I mean, it's really in that like half and half kind of texture. It is moderate acidity. It has high alcohol. Uh, the tannins are very soft. It is moderate plus complexity. It's long length just because it's such an intense wine. And uh, this is a tough one. I mean, I think uh, I, I'm on, like I'm on styles that can get really candied and rich. So Zen's an option. Uh, a super hot vintage of Shadon Pop, like 07 or 09 would be an option. Maybe with some age on it, it's got a garnet rim. Uh, and then Corvina and Amarone blend would be an option. The sugar 
is allowed and acceptable in uh, Amarone. A lot of people don't know that. There's a little bit of sugar there usually. Um, and, but uh, one thing that I also look for with Amarone is when you put it through that drying process that you also get a spike in acidity because when you lose water, the pH goes down. Mm. So I'm going to check again for that right now. So, and that's how oftentimes there's a disconnect between acidity and alcohol where you're like, why is this this way? I think that's with this sugar and the ripeness and how candied and raisinated it is, but also that it's savory. I think the only thing that makes sense, this is a hard one, but the only thing that makes sense for me is, and the fruit doesn't seem like it was treated well and it's had some trouble. It's lived a tough life. <laughs> um, I, I would put this at like a 10 to 15 year old Amarone, maybe 2007 Amarone from Veneto. I think that's, that's the best I can do on that one, Chris. All right. All yeah. Right. Put uh, you through the ringer on that one. Yeah, that's maybe. a hard one. Uh, so uh, wine four, uh, red wine, no gas or sediment. It's got a moderate concentration of color. What I do to figure out concentration of color is I usually use a white background. I put my hand underneath it. And if I can see the wrinkles, I'm not saying any of you out there have any wrinkles on your hands. You're all beautiful people. But, I'm going to Botox my knuckles, baby. Yeah, I smooth have Smooth as eggs. You do have unusually smooth knuckles. It's all the cracking my knuckles that I probably yeah. do. You know? Yeah, I have very wrinkly knuckles. <laughs> and it's those um, long baths that you do. Yeah, and, yeah get the alligator skin. Yeah. No, I can actually see through this wine. Uh, so I think this is a moderately concentrated wine. It, it does have a little bit of haziness, which makes me think this could have been uh, not filtered as intensely as um, other styles. Uh, there's a little bit, you're beginning to see some garnet around the hue. Garnet's that orange color that you get with old wine or not terribly old Italian wine. See so much oxygen that you'll get that orange rim. Uh, on the nose, the wine's clean, youthful, and it smells very good. This is probably my favorite wine of flight so far. <laughs> um, it has this uh, fresh to just right uh, cherries, black cherries, pomegranate, red apple skin. It's a really pretty red fruit, and it's very lifted and aromatic. I really enjoy how it smells. It's potpourri and fresh rose petals. It's all it's floral, rhubarb, and uh, like red licorice and fennel. Some really fun aromas in the uh, in the savory zone. You've got like uh, a little bit of like green coffee bean, baked clay, some tree bark, decaying forest floor. I mean, it's got a lot of organic earth to it as well. But that's not, it's not a super earthy one. It's got fruit and earth. It's really well, really well balanced. And I do think there's some new oak. That green coffee bean uses an indicator to me of new uh, barrique. I'm also getting a little bit of a stimminess, almost like a Campari character that makes me think this this wine might not have been fully destemmed. Also, if anyone ever wants to know what whole cluster fermentation smells like, what I did was buy a bottle of Sailor's Aperitif from Specs, mm. and then uh, it's made with gentian root. Mm. It's a gentian root liqueur, and I just smelled it or tasted it every day. And to me, that's that's what whole cluster smells like. It's funny you mentioned that because that's a similar exercise to what was discussed in our blind tasting group. Uh, what was it a week or two ago where it was like, have a glass of cognac and a glass of bourbon next to one another uh, for French versus American Oak. Exactly. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll never forget the, 
I think it's Poliziano, Vino Nobile de Montepulciano. I think they use some American oak really hmm. unusually. And it was the first time in my life I ever smelled oak. I drank a glass of that. And then I went and met some friends at a bar and I had like an old fashioned or some bourbon drink. And yeah. I was like, wait, this tastes like <laughs> that wine I just had. Yeah. And I was too early in my career to understand the connection I was making. That's so funny. Yeah. But I remember it. I'll go to the palate. Really pretty on the palate dry. You have the fresh to ripe red fruits, that cherry, black cherry, the pomegranate, red apple skim, that pretty floral characters there. I really love um, this faint, stimmy sensation in the background that I think the fruit is ripe for the style. And I feel like it was a warmer vintage. And I think the the whole cluster, the inclusion of stems and the winemaking balances that out. So it gives you this woodsy, herbaceous tone that balances out the fruit. Um, it, it almost gives you more leeway to highlight fruit because you have a balance to it. I still get that um, the green coffee bean and that rhubarb and the like faint French vanilla and cinnamon and clove, nutmeg, kind of new French barrique character, but it's not a lot, like 10 to 25%. And structurally, uh, structurally it is um, moderate plus... And that's moderate body with moderate plus acidity, moderate plus alcohol. The tannins are silky, smooth, some moderate tannins, and uh, it's complex with a long length. I think I, I think my conclusions here would all be Pinot-based at this point with all that cherry red fruit. Um, oak would be common on a Pinot Noir. The color's right for Pinot. I would expect a little more funk and some darker fruit on Gamay. Um and Italian would have more tannin mm -hmm. and more oxidation. Uh, I, I think uh, this could be new or old world. For me, the prob the questionnaire for me would be, is this cooler vintage Oregon or warmer vintage uh, Burgundy? And, and, and so I'm trying to learn from what I learned in one one. And so I think I would lean just from the fact that there is some acidity I don't know. The fruit's pretty candy. I think I'm going to have to just say this is a really, really good example of, oh gosh, this is hard. Yeah. A really good example of Burgundy uh, from a warm vintage. And, and I think that uh, it's, we're good that we're at a spot that I'm really confused about. I'm like, is, could this be Oregon? But I, I think I would have to go 2015, a strong warm vintage of Burgundy and, uh, and maybe something like, uh, Shamble Mousini Village. This is really good, whatever it is. There we go. That's all we can ask for. That yeah. is good, right? Yeah. You went two for two on the next set. Oh, dang. In terms of variety and place, we've got Amarone for wine number three, and we've got uh, just Bourgogne Rouge Pinot Noir from Burgundy. Yeah. I'm very excited about this because I love this wine. So the Amarone... 2011 Le Besole from Accordini Igino. Um, and I mean, I'm glad that I stuck I stuck with it there. Uh, and then the um, the Burgundy, this Bertrand and Boise Cuvée Veilvin from 2017 is just so insanely good. I've been selling a lot of it and and I've had it several times and every time I don't, I, I think it's a $30 retail bottle. I don't think, I, I know because I sell it. Um, $30 retail bottle and it drinks. I, I don't know if I've ever had 
a Bourgogne Rouge that was this good. Yeah. Yeah, you could taste a hundred of them and not the one that's good. You know, you were in a similar position with Wine 4 that you were in with Wine 1, where you, mm. had, you knew what the variety was, and you were just down to that last bit of trying to find the place. And with Wine 1, you were going between California and Burgundy, and with Wine 4, you were going between Oregon and Burgundy. Yeah. Kind of like within those binaries, how, how do you kind of like reconcile I, those? I mean, I think you're using... No one thing can give you the answer there. One thing is intuition. I, I think one of the last questions you can ask yourself is, is how much, like, I prefer Burgundy over Oregon most times. So I ask myself, do I like, how much do I like this? I love this wine. It's more likely to be Burgundy. And the same thing could be said on the first wine. I think you're doing that. You're looking at color, the fact, I have to look back through what I said about it and say that there, I did say earthy character. I said some things about savory notes. Um, we talked about whole cluster, which could be common. Whole cluster fermentation is common now in Burgundy and in Oregon. So that doesn't really help you too much. But I, I think really just, you look back at ripeness, you look back at winemaking, the fact that this doesn't see a lot of new oak. Any Oregon producer making a wine this good would probably use quite a bit of new oak. Whereas on a Burt, it would be expensive. Whereas on a Bourgogne Rouge, um, this is the entry bottling from the estate. They'll probably use 10, 20% new oak on this and they'll save all their new barrels for the more expensive wines. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm posthumously analyzing this, but <laughs> I think oak w is kind of a nice way to back into it. Is that this expensive Oregon that'd be this good should see a lot of new oak, whereas Burgundy commonly wouldn't. That's a tough one. Because it, it, it is so polished and so pretty. Yeah. So you've been doing blind tasting as part of your career, essentially, for the better part of a decade at this point. Yeah. Um, and recently, during the coronavirus, you pivoted a little bit. You were working in restaurants, and now you're leading weekly internet blind tastings. Yeah. Right? Where people can buy a flight of wines from you they're in little vials about what four ounce vials mm -hmm. and the, yeah four ounce four four ounce vials four different wines could be i i, I sometimes there are themes mm -hmm. uh we'll do like this week on thursday is bordeaux varieties around the world so mm -hmm. this is merlot cabernet sauvignon cabernet franc uh carmenere the the uh, malbec the varieties that are commonly blended together and and let's put them side by side. It's almost a single blind where you know what the options are, but let's put them next to each other so that we can more clearly see what the differences are. Yeah. Yeah. And usually it'll be about 20 to 30 people online and- uh, Doing Zoom. it through Zoom? Zoom, yeah. And uh, and we do encourage participation. So like, this is a good chat. This is a nice banner. It's kind of fun. You've got a nice, you've got some people here who are WSET students that, um, that are really academic and look at it as a classroom setting and then You've got a good number of attendees that are date nights <laughs> that just want to learn a, bit of, a little bit about wine and we try to slow it down and make sure if we say a word like reduction that I'm going to explain it to you and not assume that you know what it is. But so far, I think we're six or seven weeks in and we've done it every week and we're getting at least 20 something people every week. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really fun. 
Is there anything you've learned by teaching blind tasting in those that you hadn't previously learned by being proctored by a master sommelier for a blind tasting? Uh, I think one of the things is that that anytime you teach, you learn these foundational limits of your understanding where you find out, you know, you always know the question's coming. You say a word like reduction and you know someone's going to ask about it. And there's a lot of smart people in these cases. You know, these are people who are doctors, clinical researchers from the universities around town, and they're going to ask scientific questions. And it's led me to do a lot more research about the nature of these chemical compounds mm-hmm. that form uh, the aromatics in the wine. Yeah, so that I can, uh, so I'm coming prepared just as well as I'm asking them to come prepared. I think, I think that's what I've learned the most. And and I think it's also given me a respect for how far I've come. Just that, like I said before, there's so much to learn before you can even, like, there's no reason to blind taste unless you have a certain foundational knowledge. It's fine. I don't want to say that. There's a reason for everyone to blind taste. But <laughs> uh, but it's good to have a good foundational knowledge so you can connect these ideas, yeah. right? You need, you need to establish these spaces in your brain for these wine styles so you can connect ideas to them. So... You've been blind tasting for a while and that you, you talk about kind of this relationship between theory and kind of like the practical portion of tasting wine. Now at your job that you worked at before, you were working at Papa Steakhouse, kind of the premier steakhouse or wine destination in the state of Texas, right? Yeah. And a big part of your job was, you know, opening bottles of wine for guests and y'all had implemented a program which at this point is in a lot of major restaurants where you have to taste the wine before serving it to the guest. Mm. Not a, not a large amount, but about you what about a, one ounce. I mean, like, no, probably, I mean, half ounce. As small as we can pour and confidently assess the wine. So that means guest orders the bottle, you present it to them tableside, you show them the label, you tell them the name, and then you go to a side station mm. and actually open the bottle, pour a small taste, confirm that it tastes the way it should before going back to the table. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so that had to have been a big change from the way it was done previously. I remember, I think I read an article by John Binet where he referenced that being a new trend that we were seeing in restaurants. And that was about like five or six years ago. Did you notice any sort of like pushback or was there any sort of like adjustment time that was needed for that process? Um, I didn't. I think the adjustment period was more on the side of Papa's corporate and like Mm -hmm. making sure that and rightfully so, right? This is a change. You, you don't want to offend guests, but you're, you're essentially, um, you're taking some of their wine. Yeah. Um, which when we're talking about a bottle that's, you know, yeah, you could have $5,000. Yeah, you could have a $5,000 bottle, which always makes me nervous. Usually I'm, whenever it gets to that price, I'm going to inform them and offer them the opportunity to, for me to taste or not, which mm-hmm. almost invariably they will offer me a taste. But I think it took us a little bit of time to warm up to it. Mm-hmm. The The process was incorporated at Papa's because Jack Mason came in and it was something that he'd done in New York and found it really successful uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's been, like I said, I think, I think it was really just us trying to figure out and get comfortable with it. The guest actually never said anything. The The process is we, uh, we take the bottle to the side, we taste the half ounce, but what it does is make sure one, that the wine is presenting itself exactly as it should. Two, um, two, it allows us, if we haven't tasted the wine, 
And when you have a list with 5,000 selections, it's really difficult to have tasted every wine. We have 150 wines coming off the list because we're out of stock each month. And we have 100 to 150 wines going on the list each month. So it's hard to keep up with all these new wines. A lot of times they're allocated wines. When it's Burgundy, we make it one to six bottles of each wine each year. So it's really theoretical when you're trying to decide how something tastes. And when you sell it in a certain manner, it's nice to be able to, you taste it, you make sure the wine's perfect. It's showing exactly as it should. But if the wine has a little bit more tannins than you thought it would, it allows me to make the decision to adjust the serving temperature, to decant it. It allows me to do things to make sure that it presents to the guests in the best way possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've pulled a bottle, not because it was corked, but because maybe I made a mistake. If I pull a bottle and I've described it as full and lush and rich, then I get the wine and it is not as rich as I think the guest's going to want. I'll let them taste it, but I'll let them, it allows me to be upfront and say, we just got this and I haven't had it, but um, it's not showing exactly as heavy as I would have liked. Let me know what you think. Then if they agree with me, I, I think it establishes a better rapport between the guests and the someway. Hmm. I, I'm all for it. I haven't had any guests push back against it. I, but to go back to that point, yeah. you present it to the guests. You let them know it's not as full as you would like with the idea that you might be able to get them something else that is more full. No, I leave it up to them. But I, I acknowledge, I try to get in front of the situation yeah. and acknowledge it. Totally. Yeah. So I mean, you, the reality is I'm trying to be as transparent as possible with the guests. Mm-hmm. So you uh, were talking about the number of selections that you guys have at Pappas. And it's an insane number, right? I, I'd say that in your tenure there, you probably tasted 10,000 different bottles. Yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. I mean, an insane amount of wine. And we think about blind tasting so often as like muscle memory or creating some sort of like memory based on an experience that arguably is very subjective. So for you, how do you approach recording what something tastes like what's what's the approach that you take there i mean i think it evolves over time um you can't remember everything about every wine yeah so you almost remember for me it's almost a visualization i've I've heard different people describe it in different ways but i'm recording kind of these various archetypes within a region style and then assigning a quality in my mind so if i taste something I, I might not remember exactly how wine for tastes to the most minute detail, but I will remember that it's a generous style. It drinks easy. I could sell this to an Oregon Pinot Noir drinker. There is some whole cluster usage here and there's some new oak. Um, I'll remember it as a generous style of burgundy. And then I think in my mind, I remember that QPR is exceptional. So you, you tag it in your mind with ideas, you know, whether it tastes like roses or violets or mm-hmm. cherries or raspberries is really immaterial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the big picture ideas that are I, important. I think one time you had described it to me that your job is so often connecting the dots for guests. So you, you're almost functioning like a Spotify, right? Yeah. You, you, you like this for reasons X, Y, and Z. You might like this because it has those same markers. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the Spotify Pandora kind of analogy is really good there. In the same way that when I'm tasting, I'm not remembering all the details about the wine. I'm remembering, 
I'm almost tagging it yeah. with, with its functionalities. And, and functionally, let's say like a warm vintage of Etna Rosso, like 2014 or 2012. Uh, functionally, it's red fruit driven. It's high alcohol. And the tannins tend to be pretty soft in these warm vintages. And, and so functionally, red fruit driven, elevated alcohol, smooth. Uh, these wines are, it's pretty similar to Pinot Noir. These wines, it'd be, if I poured it for a guest and didn't tell them that it was Norello Mascalese from Mount Etna, it'd be really likely that they would just say, oh, this is a good Pinot Noir. Yeah. You know, um, I want to include the context in the experience and the way I just, in the way that I paint this like magical story of the wine for the guests. Yeah. I mean, Norella Mascalese is grown on a volcano. There's nothing cooler than that. Hell yeah. But functionally, it works as a great introductory style to Italy for a Pinot drinker, particularly in warm vintages. Well, what else do you want to let people know about blind tasting? Anything else you want to unearth for people? The real thing, I think there's a big argument in the sommelier community about whether or not it's a um, parlor trick or if it forms any functional use. And, and I really feel like for me that it has been a tremendous foundational uh, education for my, the way that I approach the wine world. Um, and it helps you understand any wine that you taste where it fits within the wine world. You know, is this a style that would be good for a Syrah drinker? Is this a style, particularly when you go into tasting something like Rafosco from Northeast Italy, you know, what is its function within like the global wine world? Is it, is it a style for people that really want to explore obscure Italian grapes or does it have a greater functionality? And, and I would argue that it does, that this is a grape that's useful for people who want moderate plus bodied, slightly denser in color, dark fruited, slightly tannic styles. So we can look at that and say like, if you like Northern Rhone Syrah, there's a good chance you're going to like Lagrine or Rafosco, you know, and we can then work you through a lot of different regions and a lot of varieties. But I don't know if I would have been able to do that, at least in my experience, without blind tasting first. Well, anything else you want to let the people know before we let you scoop? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm selling wine and uh, I'm basically doing the same thing I've been doing at the steakhouse for the last five years. I'm bringing exciting wines and trying to connect wines and people um and uh you can visit me on my website at www.winesbybk.com or also contact me on my cell phone hell yeah cool and you're on instagram at winesbybk as well yeah crushing it awesome man thank you so much thank you and that is our show today uh thank you for listening to learn more about brandon's weekly blind tastings visit him on instagram or online at wines by bk those tastings are every thursday uh, you can subscribe to by the glass wherever you source your audio content thank you for listening and we will see you next week